Heavenly Father, in this passage that you've given us today, you have spoken to us about incredible things through the Apostle Paul. You have revealed the relationship and the friendship that he had with you. In spite of his friendships in this world that failed him in a number of different ways, Lord, you were such an incredible friend to Paul, and you are such an incredible friend to us. I ask only, Father, that during this time, you would cause us to see that. Cause us to see you as the perfect friend that we need. And by your grace, Father, cause it to have the right impact on us. Let us press ourselves deeper and deeper into our friendship with you and to enjoy all of the infinite benefits to the fullest that you have offered us through yourself. Please, Father, forgive us for any hardness of heart that we may have this morning. Please, by your Spirit, speak through me your word. Cause me to to preach this rightly. Cause us to hear this rightly, to respond to it, to take it to heart, to hear these things, to believe your truth, and to rightly respond in wanting you more and in seeking you more. Lord, glorify yourself in this time of proclamation. Let it magnify you and make you known rightly. And glorify yourself in causing this to have the intended effect on us that it should. Lord, please, cause us to see the incredible, amazing, perfect, beautiful friend that we have in you. May you be our best friend and cause us to be the best friends to you. Lord, we ask that you would be with us as we walk this life, that we would find that friendship in you, that this morning you would proclaim the glories of this to us mightily by the power of your Spirit. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. And this will be our last Sunday in 2 Timothy. We've been at it now for several weeks, several months actually. You know, for, for once, I actually felt like I had a good sermon introduction. And then I was talking with Pastor Kurt in the kitchen a few minutes earlier, and he made me aware that today, August 5th, is actually a national holiday. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it is National Friendship Day. National Friendship Day on the day when the sermon is about our friendship with Christ. So I could have had a much better introduction than the one that I have, but um, I thought it was you know, worth a shot. have to try and tie it in with that. Let me give you the introduction I had beforehand. I had a number of, of incredible, famous quotes on friendship to help us get our minds oriented in the right place. Let's start with Proverbs 27, verse 9. <clears throat> Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Aristotle said that friendship is a thing most necessary to life, since without friends, no one would choose to live though possessed of all other advantages. Francis Bacon said that this communicating of a man's self to his friend works two contrary effects, for it redoubleth joys and cutteth griefs in half. Cicero said that friendship is the only thing in the world concerning the usefulness of which all mankind are agreed. C.S. Lewis said that we live, in fact, in a world starved for solitude, silence, and private, and therefore starved for meditation and true friendship. Thomas Aquinas said that there is nothing on this earth more to be prized than true friendship. Now, I want you to take a second to think about, maybe close your eyes and, and picture these people. Who are 
your best friends? Who are your best friends? Take a second, maybe name their names and picture their faces. Now that you have that group in your mind, I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus one of those people? Is Jesus one of those people that you would consider to be one of your best friends? Is he your best friend? Or is he even in that group at all? This passage finds us at an interesting place. It's at the very end of what's likely the last letter of the Apostle Paul. And he's writing this to his protege, Timothy. And he's imprisoned, either in jail or under house arrest. But this is at the very end of his life. And so these last words of, these, of this last letter of his are his closing remarks. And of course, there's salutations there as well. But these words of Paul are likely some of the last words that we have from the apostle. And when they provide for us is amazing. I think that oftentimes we have a tendency to overlook the last few verses of an epistle like this. But these verses, verses 9 through 22, provide such incredible, amazing insights. And it's not only Paul's friendships, but most importantly, his friendship with God. The thesis, the main point of the sermon this morning is very simple. It's this, that Jesus is the perfect friend that you need. Jesus is the perfect friend that you need. And I've prayed this week that it would have two effects on you. That one, it would cause you to press deeper into your friendship with him. And that two, you would start to experience and enjoy all of the benefits of this friendship with Christ. That you would press deeper into your relationship with him and that you would enjoy all of its benefits. There are three points I want to draw out from this passage. The first point is that we all need a friend. The second point is that Jesus is the friend that's always there for you. And the second point is that Jesus is the only friend that you need. So first, we all need a friend. Second, Jesus the friend you always have. And third, Jesus is the only friend that you need. Let's start with the first point. We all need a friend. Look at the words of Paul starting in verse 9. He's writing this to Timothy now, and he says in verse 9, Do your best to come to me quickly. And then if you go all the way down to the end of the passage, to the second to last verse, verse 21, he says the same thing. Do your best to get here before winter. This command is repeated for emphasis. It means be diligent. Do everything that you can to come and see me. Now, why was he asking that? Why did Paul want Timothy to come to him? You know, we get a glimpse of this. At the very beginning of 1 Timothy, he asked the same thing. All, going all the way back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Timothy, please come to me because I deeply desire to see you so that my joy might be made complete. He wanted Timothy to come because he wanted to see his friend. Perhaps for the last time. Paul might not have much more time here on this earth. And he likely wanted to pass on the work of the church, maybe some final instructions or warnings to Timothy. But even more importantly, I think Paul wanted his friend Timothy to come so that he could be encouraged during this very difficult time of his life. If this was true of the apostle, I think we can absolutely say for certain that this is true of us. If Paul needed friends to come visit him during his difficult times, how much more so do we? We're not even apostles. Paul experienced Christ face to face, had an incredibly deep and intimate relationship with him, and yet here he says during these last days of his life, 
that he needs his companion, he needs his partner, Timothy, to come to him. And how true of this, how true is this, especially in such dark situations as Paul? Aren't they much harder to walk alone? Aren't they much harder to do by yourself? Now, Paul's situation, he was likely on trial in Rome during this time. And so he's coming here before either the emperor or the prefect of the local city. He's imprisoned, and from what we know historically, it sounds like his imprisonment is not going well. You know, he asked for the parchments, he asked for the scrolls, he asked for the cloak, likely because wintertime is coming and it's cold. And this is a time where very likely the persecution under Nero was, was already underway. Christians were scared. People had deserted Paul because horrible, horrible things were happening to the believers there in Rome. They were under fierce persecution, oftentimes wrapped in skin clothes, chained to stakes on the streets, and burned alive at night as candles. This was a very difficult time for Christians, and this was a very difficult trial in Paul's life. But what we find is that at this great point of need for Paul, everyone had deserted him. Look at verse 10. He says, For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Now there were different reasons why everybody had left, but the point is that Paul was all alone. What we see here is that there are some people who were never with Paul in the first place. You could say his opposers or his foes. We find something like this in verse, in verse 14. Alexander, you can read with me, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm, and the Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Granted, Alexander was never with him in the first place, but there were people who were with him that left him. We find someone like Demas in verse 10 who betrayed Paul. We read, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but in the book of Acts, Demas was once a faithful companion to Paul. He was likely with Paul during his first imprisonment. But second time around, the trial's a little bit more intense. The stakes are higher. The persecution is fierce under Nero. Things aren't looking good for Paul. It's not a good time to be associated with him. And then what happens? We read that because of his love for the world, he goes to Thessalonica. Why Thessalonica? We're not sure exactly. It was a major city, it was a major city in the empire back at the time. Lots of business and trade, probably because of his old connections. But the point was that he did not consider it worth staying with Paul at that point in time. He preferred his comfort and the safety and the luxury of Thessalonica instead and forsook his old master. However, it's not just a matter of people who were opposed to Paul or betrayed Paul, but there were real friends that Paul had that simply couldn't be there for him at the time. Continue in verse 10, we read that Cretans, or Cretans had gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Both of these men were faithful partners with Paul and co-workers in the gospel. Both of them likely uh, preachers as well with Paul. And even though his relationships with them are still good at this time, they cannot afford to be with him for ministry reasons. They had gone to different places, and Paul understands that. And yet he recognizes the great need that he has for companionship and friendship during this very difficult time in his life. It reminds me of the proverb, Proverb 18, verse 24, which says that one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. And it's so true. It's so hard to stay the course in a very difficult time in life without friends. 
without people to come alongside you and help you carry on. And so that's why he asks for someone to come to him. He says, do your best to come before winter. Winter was going to be more difficult to travel. So he says, Timothy, please come to me. As I read to you, or as I had mentioned to you earlier from chapter 1 of, of this letter, verse 4, Paul said earlier, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. He wanted Timothy back with him. He wanted to see him before he died. He wanted the support and the encouragement in the last days of his life as he faces perhaps the greatest trial he ever has before. And he also asked for someone else. He asked for Mark to come to him. As we had talked about earlier, Mark was someone that he didn't have a good relationship with at one point in the past. He was once a, once a partner with Barnabas, but when Paul and Barnabas got into a dispute and ended up splitting, Mark went with Barnabas, and then they were at odds with each other for a long time. But it seems like at this point in the letter, at the end of Paul's life, somewhere in between then and now, they had been reconciled. And now he wants Mark back, because he says, Mark is useful for me in ministry. Paul asked for his friends to come to him. He asked for Timothy, and he asked for Mark, because he's in desperate need of friendship and companionship during this time. I think we've all experienced a similar thing. Maybe at a difficult point in your life, someone came alongside you and helped you. And you can probably imagine how much harder it would have been, perhaps even impossible it would have been without that person being there with you. Even in the case of ministry and in life all the way around, things are so much easier to do. Success is so much better with friends and companions and partners. I remember when, when I first got saved, uh, a, a few years back, and I started desiring to share the gospel with people. It was initially very hard to evangelize at first. It was intimidating and embarrassing, and there was a lot of fear of man to deal with and talking to people about Christ. But it was so much easier when I went with other people. What a difference it made to have other people come alongside you and do that same work of ministry together. All of a sudden, the fear decreases, the intimidation increases, your strength increases, and now you're able to do the work better than you were able to do before. There's nothing like having the presence and support of a friend with you when you're trying to go through something difficult. This is true in life, it's true in ministry, and it's especially true in difficult times. As the old song says, we all need somebody to lean on. We all need someone to help us carry on in our work of ministry, especially when, when things are hard for us. Now, I was thinking about this this week, and I was, I was trying to understand why we're like this. Why are we this way? Why do we need other people? I believe it's because we're made in the image of God. I believe it's because God is like this, that God is a triune God. He does not exist by himself, but he exists with other persons. And when he created Adam, what did he say before he created Eve? He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And so he created a spouse. He created a partner for him. He created us to live in friendships, to live in community. In fact, he created us to be friends with himself. He didn't need us. He was perfectly sufficient with his friendships in the Trinity, but he wanted us. He created us to be his friends, for him to be our friend, and for us to be his friend. And now let me ask you this. How do you think you are as a friend to God? How have you been as a friend to God? Are you like Timothy or like Luke that has been faithful to God through the good times and the bad, that has been there to support and encourage and praise and worship and glorify him 
all the time? Or are you more like Alexander in verse 14, who opposed God and opposed his cause and the message? I read this and I was extremely convicted in thinking about these, these verses because when I hear something like the harm that Alexander caused, I think of the harm that I have caused Christ. When I read of what Demas did in verse 10, how he loved this present world and forsook Paul, I'm convicted because I see that and I see me. I see myself as having loved this world and having forsaken Christ. We weren't there for Christ when he needed us. We deserted him, left him to die alone on a cross. We're not like the Timothy and Luke. Our relationship with God leaves us like Alexander. It leaves us like Demas. We're like Judas to Christ. That's what I see when I read this. I see myself as that. And now does the Bible say that we, that we get away with being such awful friends to God like this? Quite to the contrary. It says in verse 15, speaking of the horrible things that Alexander did against God, said you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. And then in verse 14, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. The word means that he will give back to him according to his deeds. Alexander will not get away with this treachery. He will not get away with the damage that he has done to the cause of Christ. And that's the same for us. We have been such awful friends to God. We have been so unfaithful to him. For most of our lives, we have done nothing but dishonor him and sin against him and offend him and hurt him and harm him. And he has been nothing but a perfectly faithful and loving friend to us. He has done nothing but care for us and bless us and lavish his grace and mercy upon us. And in return, we have done nothing but be unfaithful friends to him apart from Christ. And there are consequences for this. God says that he will repay Alexander for the deeds that he has done. And he must repay us for the grievances that we have committed against him. And we know that that penalty is an eternal death. That that penalty is hell. That that's what we deserve for being such awful friends to God. He created us to exist in a loving, glorious relationship with him. And instead we did the exact opposite. We were like these people Alexander, Demas, and Judas, who betrayed Christ. We failed to be there for him. We failed to be the friends that he created us to be. And yet, what does it say that he did? Did he treat us the same way? Instead, he was the friend to us that we failed to be to him. Jesus said that there's no greater love than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Jesus didn't just lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies. He laid down his life for you. He loved us and was the friend to us that we failed to be to him perfectly. And that penalty of eternal death in hell that we deserved for being such God-haters and being such awful friends to Christ, he bore himself on the cross, took the full punishment that I deserve for being such an awful friend to God, Jesus bore because he is such a great friend to me. He bore because he is such a faithful and wonderful friend to a sinner, to his foe like me. Even though I was the worst, literally the worst possible friend to Christ, he was not that kind of friend to me. And he was not that kind of friend to you. Instead, we find that he's the perfect friend. He's the perfect friend to us. 
He loves us even though we've hated him. He's faithful to us even though we're unfaithful to him. Even though we've done nothing but harm him and hurt him, he's cared for us and even sacrificed himself to take the punishment that we deserve for our grievances against him. What a friend we have in Christ. And I want us to look at the next two points because what we see is that Paul expands and elaborates on on the incredible nature of our friendship with Christ. I want us to see first that Jesus is the friend that you always have and second, that Jesus is the only friend that you need. Look with me at verse 17. So first, starting in verse 9, he describes how all of his friends have left him. He's been deserted. But then what? Verse 17, he says, But, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. In contrast to all of those who left Paul, to all of those who either betrayed him or who couldn't be there or who wouldn't be there, there stands Christ at his side. Everyone else is gone, but not Jesus. He's still there. He still has Christ. What an image that is to me. You think of somebody standing by your side. For me, at least, I imagine a best man at a wedding. That there they are, they're all lined up, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, and standing right next to the groom is the best man there to support him and encourage him on the biggest day of his life. Or think of a soldier in battle. In, in, in the heat of a conflict, perhaps, perhaps bunkered down in a trench, they're side by side, refusing to leave each other, to continue to fight on, to defend each other, to protect each other. That's the image that we get here. That there is the Lord standing there right by Paul's side. Everyone else is gone, but not Christ. What makes somebody a good friend? I asked this question in one of the emails that we sent out. I hope that you had a chance to think about it. What do you think really makes somebody a good friend? I think it's two things. I think it's one, that they're there for you. I think it's secondly, that they care about you, that they can care for you. I think it's that they're there for you and that they care for you. If you have those two things in a friend, then they're a good friend to you. Now, we have lots of friends. We're very blessed in this area. At least most of us have, have a number of different friends. Perhaps you have friends in your family, maybe friends from work, peers, school, colleagues, neighbors. But none of those friends, as good as they may be, can always be there for you. No matter what, it's not possible. Nobody can always be there for you. It doesn't matter what they say. It's not possible for any human to do that. But there is one friend who can. There is one perfect friend who can literally always be there for you. And not just can, but always is there for you. Jesus is always present with you. Verse 17, we read that the Lord stood at my side. The Lord stood at my side, Paul says. Can you say that? Can you say that the Lord stood at my side? That the Lord was with me the whole time? In the good times and in the bad? In the good times, there's God with me, there's Christ with me, celebrating when I celebrate, rejoicing when I rejoice. He's happy with me when I'm happy. We're doing life together. When it's good, there's my friend, there's Christ with me. And in the bad, when I'm down, there Christ is to pick me up. When I'm in need, there he is to extend his hand and help. When I'm suffering, there he is to comfort me. When I'm discouraged, there he is to discourage me. 
There he is to hold me has. There he is to help me persevere to the end. Always there. Never fails. Never gone. Never absent. Never deserting. Always there for you. Always there with you. Good times, bad times. Jesus never leaves. He's, I think, most of you can probably relate to this. It's even in the most difficult times, even in the hardest times, that friendship is most sweet. The times when you're probably struggling the most or, or when the trial is most intense, that you feel the sweetness and the depth and the beauty of your intimacy with Christ, perhaps more than any other. Jesus is perfectly understanding. He's perfectly empathetic. He's perfectly sympathetic. He knows you and understands your problems completely, through and through, unlike any other friend can. He understands your issues and what you're going through even more than you do. And he's always there with you. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. The Christian falls. The Christian falls often, but the Christian never falls alone. The Christian always falls with Christ there at his side to pick him up again. The Christian's always there supported by Christ every moment of every day, whether he's aware of it or not. It is impossible for God to leave you. It is impossible for God to forsake you. God is the perfect friend. Jesus is the perfect friend who never leaves you and never forsakes you and can't because he's the best friend. How amazing it is, one, not to just have somebody on your side at all times, but how amazing it is to have Christ at your side at all times. It would be incredible to have any friend like that, but to have Jesus as that friend to have Jesus as that person that's always with you, that's always there for you, who better to have with you than Christ? This is so amazing. I, I don't think that we get this. You know, I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and I don't believe that there's a better one than the story in, in Daniel chapter 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they come before the um, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they've refused to bow down to the statue that he created. And he says, if you refuse to worship my God, I will cast you into the fiery furnace. And of course, you know how the story goes. They refuse to bow down in their allegiances to Christ. And so it heats the furnace. So hot that those standing outside the furnace are consumed by the flames and burned. And as they throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, what does King Nebuchadnezzar see? He sees not three men standing in the flames, but four. There's a fourth person there. They're standing with them in the heat and in the most fiery, literally fiery trial that you could possibly imagine. They're standing there with the three men is Christ himself, protecting them, communing with them. There at the hardest, most difficult moment of their lives is Christ literally standing with them. Blows Nebuchadnezzar's mind, takes them out and commands that God alone be worshiped. That's the right response. There is Jesus standing there with them, and he's standing in the fire with you. Whatever your fire is, probably not a fiery furnace as it was literally for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he stood there in the fire with Paul in his defense in Rome. He stood there in the trial with him, even when everyone else had deserted them, and he stands there with you in your fire, in your trial, never leaving, 
never forsaking. Jesus is the best friend you need because he is always there for you. Is he your best friend? Does it feel like that for you? We've all had a best friend, I think, at some point in your life. Take that relationship that you have and compare it to the relationship that you have with Christ. Do you enjoy communion and fellowship with him and experience his presence continually? Is it something that you're aware of and cognizant throughout the day? Imagine having your best friend with you all the time. How much, how much, how, how great and how wonderful and how fun and how, how glorious that would be. And then think to yourself that that is exactly true of Christ. That there he is with you always. I think you'd be bolder. I think you'd be stronger. I think your life would be lived in the context of this relationship that you always have with somebody, even if you can't see it with your eyeballs, that he's always standing there by your side. In picturing your best friend, ask yourself, is Jesus better to you than that? Is Jesus better to you than that person? If not, why not? We all hear this and we all know it's true, but I don't think it has the right impact on us sometimes. The reality is is that this truth, that Jesus is always there for you, should give you great joy. It should fill you with happiness. It should give you peace, satisfaction, security, comfort at all times and always. It should kill your anxiety. You should never worry again. It should boost your confidence and make you feel like there's nothing that you can't do for him because he's there with you always. And so one, Jesus is the friend that you always have. And lastly, Jesus is the only friend that you need. Jesus is the only friend that you, were need, that you need. We were made to have friends. God made us for community. I'm not saying you shouldn't have other friends. But the reality is, is that you have no one else save Christ. You have everything. If you only have Christ, you have everything that you need. Jesus is the perfect friend you need, not only because he's always there for you, but because he also cares for you. He loves you so deeply. He takes such incredible care of you, and he does it in three ways that we see here. There's three verbs I want you to look at. The first one, verse 17, we read, But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. The word is literally empowers, meaning sharing the ability to do something for you, gives you the ability, infuses you, imparts to you the ability, makes you able to serve him, fills you with power, strengthens you, makes you strong. That's what Christ does. And if you understand the doctrine of total inability, you start to see how necessary this is. That you, as a sinner, apart from Christ, cannot do anything good. Absolutely, utterly helpless. You can't do a single good thing apart from Christ. And then when you realize that Jesus is the friend that comes to you to empower you, to make you able to glorify him and love him and please him and serve him and do all these things that you're called to do, you start to feel how absolutely necessary this is, that you need Jesus. You need Jesus for every single good thing in your life, every good thing in your heart, every good thing outside of you is a product of God's grace towards you. Jesus empowers us. And for what purpose? We see this continuing in the rest of the verse, verse 17. So that, here's the purpose clause, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. 
It's for the cause of Christ. It's for the preached gospel, that it might fulfill its work, that it might have the effect that it's intended to have on the hearts of mankind, that it might work itself out to full measure, that people might be redeemed, that a people might be made for God to rightly image God and glorify him and reflect him forever. And so Christ enables you. He makes you able, gives you the power, gives you the strength to live for his glory and to do this work, to fulfill this work that he's called us to as his church. Continuing in verse 17, first word, empowers. Second word we see here, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. Some of your translations have those words as different words, deliver and rescue. They're actually the same word. It's the same word that means to draw out of, means to remove from danger, to remove from a bad situation. The lion's mouth, some people think, was literally the lion's mouths, that, that Paul was saved from the lions that sometimes Christians were fed to in the amphitheater. I think it's, it's a, a metaphorical term that refers to all of the attacks and persecutions that, that God had faithfully delivered Paul from. And we see that he not only rescued Paul from those, but that he rescued him from every evil attack, every evil work of men, every evil work of Satan, every temptation, every evil design, rescues him from sin, rescues him from iniquity, rescues him from suffering, rescues him from death. He will rescue you from all of them. Just as he did Paul, he will rescue you from all of them. That Jesus not only empowers you, but he delivers you and rescues you from everything bad out there. From the sin within your own heart. From the temptations outside. From suffering and death eternal. From Satan and from the hands of men, Jesus delivers you. Jesus rescues you. How does he do it? Well, ultimately it's out of his such great love for you that he sacrificed himself to take all of that punishment for you to put to death your sinful nature, and to give you a new nature. That's the primary way he does it, but it's also in his daily delivering us from evil. That was part of his prayer, to deliver us from evil, that every single day, Jesus Christ, being the friend to us that he is, delivers us from the temptation and from the sin that bombards us regularly. Jesus does that. He's that kind of friend to us. And then last word that we see in verse 18 Continuing on, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will what? Bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. That he will preserve you. He will deliver you into safety. Deliver you from this world. Promises to take you out of here. He will not let you go. He will not fail you. He will not drop the ball on your heart. Maybe you've had bad relationships in the past where somebody's broken your heart. Jesus can't break your heart. He will preserve you and hold you fast all the way until the very end, until you die or until he comes again. He will take you out of this world and bring you to, I love this, to his heavenly home. Bring you safely to his heavenly home, his perfect, blessed, glorious, eternal home. What a friend. What a friend. He does it for our joy. He does it because he loves us and he cares about us. To bring us out of this awful place into a glorious eternity with him and loving relationship with him forever and ever, enjoying heaven with Christ. And he does it also for his glory as we see in verse 18. 
Paul's response to this amazing truth is the right response when he says in verse 18, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. To him be glory forever and ever. Glorifies him greatly in being this kind of friend to us. It glorifies him greatly in holding you fast, not letting you go all the way until the end. Holding your hand, maybe not just holding your hand, but picking you up and carrying you all the way across the finish line into his heavenly home. Jesus is both the best person to care for you and the only person who can truly care for you. Not only is he the best person to do it, but he's the only person that can really care for you the way that you need to be cared for. I love this. This is such an amazing promise. I want you to hear these words that God said through Isaiah chapter 41. I want you to hear these to you personally and to you specifically. This is God's friendship pledge to you. This is what he promises to you. He says, starting in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 41, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am Yahweh your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. God's words to you. His words to you. What does a woman look for in a husband? Does she look for somebody who's weak? Does she look for somebody who's unsupportive of her? Does she look for a quitter? Does she look for somebody that's financially unstable and won't be able to help provide for the family? I think she looks for the opposite of those things. She looks for strength. She looks for perseverance. She looks for protection. She looks for provision. She looks for love. Jesus is everything that you could possibly want in a friend. Everything. Pick a trait that a good friend should have. Jesus has it to the fullest. He's everything that you could possibly want and need. He's the perfect friend slash husband to the church, his bride. Perfect. You need to find your best friend in Christ. If your best friend isn't Christ, your relationship with him isn't right. Jesus must be your best friend. He's the only one that can be that kind of friend to you. I hope you you feel your desperate need for him. I hope you feel how much he's the only person that can be this way to you. To trust alone in him. To depend alone on him for that friendship that you truly need. For that friendship that we all need. If you see that, the exhortation, the application point is so simple Press deeper into your friendship with him. 
Seek him more. Know him more. Enjoy him more. Find this friendship in no one else. Ultimately, it cannot be found in anybody else. Only Jesus can be this friend that you truly need, and I promise you, he will never fail you. We are so unworthy of Christ. We are so unworthy of this friend. We have been so unfaithful to him, but he has never failed us. And here he stands, offering himself freely. He offers you the hand of his friendship freely. Are you seriously going to say no to that? We don't. We would never say that out loud, but that's what we do in our lives. We turn him down. For what? Friendships with other people, which are good, yes. For other idols, things that we put in his place. What could you possibly do to justify declining Christ's offer for friendship? If you're not saved, if you don't truly know Christ, the response is a very simple one of repentance and faith. To confess your sins, to turn from them, and to trust alone in Christ. And you immediately have access to him. You immediately become a friend of God. But if you have Christ and you are his friend, then press deeper and deeper into your relationship with him. He's there. He's waiting for you. Why not draw near? The Bible says if you draw near to him, he will draw near to him. He will draw near to you. Why refrain from the greatest friendship conceivable? Why refrain from the best friendship known to man? It's the friendship that you were created for. Grow deeply in your relationship with Christ. Seek him through the word. Come to hear him speak to you. Speak to him through prayer. Commune with him all day long. Know him more through the body, through the community of believers that he's blessed you with. Be with him always. Love him always. Serve him. Please him. Live with him. He's there with you. I want you to be able to experience the full benefits of his friendship. I want you to be empowered to live the life he's called you to live. I want you to be delivered from all of the evil of our sin and of Satan and of this world. And I want you to be preserved all the way until the end. Jesus can do that for you. Jesus is that friend for you. He does it for your own joy and he does it for his own glory. Why deprive yourself? Don't decline this offer for friendship any longer. He's there. He wants to have this kind of relationship with you. So in conclusion, as we end this book, I think it's very fitting that Paul's last words are on his Savior friend who promises to bring him safe to his heavenly home. This is the end of the line for Paul. He's had a hard life and a hard ministry, but he's fought the good fight and he's finished the race. And now he says, my friend Christ Jesus, who has never failed me, who though everyone else has left me and deserted me, I still have him by my side. He promises to take me to my heavenly home. He empowers me. He has delivered me from all evil. He will continue to do so, and he will hold me fast till the end. He will bring me to his heavenly kingdom. It's a fitting end to this final letter of Paul. I think it's a fitting end to his life and his ministry, and it is such an encouragement to us, to the church, to you, to me. This is the friend that we have in Christ. The same friendship that Paul had is the same friendship that you can have today, that you can enjoy for the rest of your life, and that by his grace you will enjoy for all of eternity. Same friend, same 
friendship. At the end of this letter, he includes some salutations, which I'll, I'll read through as well, starting in verse 19. <clears throat> Greets his other friends in this life. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of, Anis- of Anisiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Tro- Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. This has been an incredible book to study together. I hope it's given you the chance to honestly evaluate your life, to evaluate your ministry and your walk and your relationship with Christ. If there's one thing that we take away from this passage, it should be that Jesus is that perfect friend that you need. We all need a friend. And he's the perfect friend because he's always there for you and because he perfectly cares for you. We can truly sing what a friend we have in Jesus. There's no better friend for sinners than Christ. My prayer is that you, like Paul, would press deeper into your friendship with him and enjoy all of its infinite wonders and benefits for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we can't thank you for the friendship that you've extended to us through Christ. You are so gracious and so glorious and so loving and so compassionate and so merciful to us. We have been such awful friends to you, but you have forgiven us completely through your Son. You have befriended us through Christ, and you have called us your friends. We ask, Heavenly Father, that by your grace you would cause us to press deeply into this friendship that we have with you. That we would truly be empowered and delivered and preserved all the way till the end by Christ. That we would be aware of him at our side at all times, enjoying that sweet and intimate communion that we can only have with you, our Savior and our God, who we were made to love and to live in relationship with like this. Forgive us for failing so miserably to truly seek you. By your grace, cause us to seek you with all of our hearts. For us to be as a church, truly deep, best friends with you. Lord, you are the best friend to us. We ask that you would truly be each of our own best friends. We ask this for your own glory in our lives, and out of your love for us as well. Amen.